0: Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope you're having a good week so far. It is certainly a beautiful day that our Lord provided us with today. I hope that you've been able to enjoy that in some form or fashion, get outside a little bit. But we are thankful, even during this time of pandemic, for so many simple, ordinary, everyday blessings that I think, if we're honest, we probably took for granted prior to the time of quarantine over these last several weeks again as i start off every week i say thank you for taking a few moments of your time to tune in to enjoy this bible study with us this week we'll be looking at matthew chapter 12 so if you want to turn there in your bible also there will be a handout for matthew chapter 12 that should be online now if not it should be up tomorrow a little bit behind on getting that posted for you all i apologize for that but I hope Hope that you will be blessed during these moments together. Would you join with me for a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this day, a day that has been filled with so many opportunities to experience your love and your goodness. Lord, we know that we are blessed beyond measure, and it's important for us to realize not only that we should be grateful for our blessings, but that we've been blessed also in order to be a blessing To others, We know that's kind of challenging to do in these days, but we have to be creative. We have to do some prayerful soul-searching and look for the ways that we may touch others, even while we must be separated. Be with my sisters and brothers as we enjoy this time together. Speak to them through these scriptures. Allow your spirit to stir their hearts and their minds that this could be a true time of discipleship and growing in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pick up at Matthew chapter 12. We're at the midpoint of a series of interactions, altercations, if you will, between Jesus and a variety of people. Last week in chapter 11, our primary focus was on the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist at that point in time was in prison by Herod Antipas, and he had some questions, some concerns related to Jesus' identity. He sent a delegation forth to inquire of Jesus if he was indeed the promised anointed one of God, or if God's people, the Jews, should be expecting someone else. Not only did Jesus offer clarification by looking at examples from his life, ministry, and teachings, he also had a great word to speak about John the Baptist, how John fulfilled that work of the prophet who was to come before the Messiah. He was able to inaugurate the ministry for Jesus. Well, as we get into chapter 12, we find that the questions, the concerns, the tensions, if you will, are going to come from primarily the Pharisees, although there are some references to the scribes within this chapter as well. The chapter is actually going to close with a little bit of concern related to his own personal family when he is teaching and he is informed that his mother and brothers are awaiting him outside. As I shared last week, and as we'll continue to discover as Matthew unfolds, there is very much a theme throughout this gospel about responding to Jesus. One, how do we identify Jesus? How does Jesus appear to us? Who is Jesus to us, you might ask? And the other question will be, how will we respond to Jesus? Jesus, God in human flesh, and this chapter is really going to emphasize the whole for or against, the fact that no one can ride the fence when it comes to an opinion about Jesus. You can't simply say, well, I'm going to follow Jesus. No, I'm not going to follow Jesus. As we often say in our world today, you're either for or against something. There is no middle ground, and that's a major emphasis for Jesus throughout this chapter. And it's going to continue to escalate as we go deeper into the book of Matthew and closer to the events of his passion. Would you join with me in Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1? Matthew teaches us, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and so they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered into the house of God. And ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or any of his companions to eat, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest and the temple break the Sabbath, and yet they are guiltless? I tell you the truth, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy more than sacrifices, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This section is going to focus primarily on how Jesus understands the Sabbath. Obviously, the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, would have been very meticulous in their understanding of Sabbath observance. And there was one big no-no, of course, that being working on the Sabbath. Now today in our lifetime, we look at situations around us and we'll actually allude to a text later on in this chapter where Jesus talks about doing things that are good for farm animals, for example. If an ox is in the ditch or if a sheep is in trouble, But when we think about work, when we typically look at this passage or refer to this passage, we think of people doing a lot of manual labor on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. Well, here the issue was not something that we would even think of as being all that big of a deal But we have to understand and appreciate a little bit of where the Pharisees were coming from. Of course, they had their interpretations of the Old Testament law and covenant. And over time, there were a number of rules, regulations, shall we say, that were outlined as to what it meant to do work. It wasn't simply don't work, period, on the Sabbath, but what does that mean? What does that look like as times change? How do people apply that teaching to their Sabbath day observance? When you look at this passage, you may be even thinking to yourself, well, it was only a few heads of grain, And let's be honest, when we look at this text, the first thing that may strike us is the fact that Jesus was passing through someone's grain field, and the disciples were hungry and helped themselves to a few heads of grain. Our big kickback, our big issue with the whole situation would be, well, Jesus and his disciples were trespassing. And then on top of that, the disciples were stealing that which did not belong to them. Those would be our real issues, but we find that in the sight of the Pharisees, they were not issues. In fact, you can look in the book of Deuteronomy, you can look at times and places in the Old Testament where it was perfectly acceptable to do exactly what the disciples were doing in that moment. One... To pass through the rows of grain was an acceptable right-of-way in Jesus' day and time. And so it was not uncommon at all for travelers to take a shortcut through a field. Again, we would say that's trespassing on somebody else's land today. And so we put up beware signs, warning signs indicating that people need not trespass on our land the other issue would be the whole matter of grain, but in the Old Testament law, it outlined that if a person found him or herself hungry, it was acceptable to pluck a few heads of grain to meet a person's nourishment needs. Now, one provision was outlined, they could pluck But they could not put a sickle in the field in the sense of harvesting any of that personal grain. That would have been an instance of stealing in the Old Testament, and certainly Jesus would have condemned any such behavior by the disciples in that given moment. But here, according to the law, they were doing something that was okay any other day of the week. If this had been, shall we say, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, no big deal, but the fact that they were quote-unquote laboring on the Sabbath served as a direct act of disobedience against the Old Testament law. And some of those laws and regulations that were expounded upon became a a listing of 39 different statements. And you can go on the internet and Google the 39 statements or guidelines related to Sabbath and working on the Sabbath. It'll take you to some different Jewish websites. And it will amaze you just how meticulous those documents are as far as what is acceptable to do versus not do on the Sabbath. For us, we wouldn't think a whole lot about that. I mean, sometimes we do a little bit of gardening on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. For some people, we recreate. We might go fishing. We may kick back on the back porch and cook out on the grill. We do a lot of things on Sunday just to to kind of relax. But if we're honest, the Lord's Day is not nearly as sacred as it once was. When things were not open on Sundays, when things were not quite as busy or hectic on the Lord's Day. But today we don't really appreciate where this situation was coming from and where it was going. For to do what the disciples were doing was a matter of labor according to the Pharisees and according to those 39 different regulations related to Sabbath day tasks. For one, they were plucking. So we could say that they were doing the manual labor of harvesting essentially on the Sabbath. And the fact that they did not only pluck the grain, but then they had to to thresh it. They had to work it between their hands in order to separate the good kernels from the chaff. And then they consumed it. And so in essence, not only were they harvesting, not only were they cleaning grain, but they were also preparing a meal on the Lord's day. They were in multiple violations of the work ethic in relation to the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were dumbfounded. How in the world can Jesus not only not say anything against the disciples' behaviors, but the fact that he's being sort of indifferent, and that must mean that he's advocating what they're doing. He is in direct disobedience to the law himself for allowing the disciples to do such a thing. Now, Jesus' argument, his rebuttal to the Pharisees, comes in multiple parts here. One, he pulls in an illustration from one of the great, great leaders of God's people. This was before... David was officially the king. We know that he would be the next king according to 1 Samuel. But in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, you can find the exact story that Jesus is alluding to in this passage, where Jesus and his men, or I should say, David and his men were famished from their journey and they went into the tabernacle which at the time was the holy place before the temple before any of uh, any of the ritual associated with the temple there was that great tent of meeting which had the holy place and the holy of holies well in the holy of holies there was a certain table over to one side known as the table of shewbread and that bread was brought in on the sabbath and it remained there in the tabernacle for the next week, 12 loaves to be exact. And at the end of that span of time, the priests were allowed to consume that bread. It was a no-no for anyone, what we would say the average, ordinary Joe or Jane, to do such a thing as consume bread that was designated to the Lord and finally for consumption by the priest. But David and his men did exactly what they shouldn't have done, and they went in and they ate, they refreshed themselves through the consumption of the bread of the presence, also known as the shewbread. So if David did that, and David was held in such high regard by the Jewish people, if he was in violation for the, of the law, he did something far worse, we might say, than what Jesus' disciples were doing then and there. Why did you not have an issue with that? So Jesus appeals to one of the traditions of the Jewish people. But then again, he pulls in the example of the priest because the priest essentially did work on the Sabbath as they were working with the sacrifices and doing so many things around the temple complex on the Lord's Day. And yet nobody took issue with that. It was okay for the priest to work on the Lord's Day, but forbid someone should do something like provide nourishment for himself. Finally, the argument comes down to the fact that Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He points to himself as being the official authority. The temple, it was held in high regard. The great leaders of the past were held in high regard by the Jews. But now someone greater, the greatest one has come along and he supersedes the temple. And as we've talked about elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus didn't come to throw away the law. He came to fulfill it, and he came and fulfilled it in a very different way that was hard to imagine for the Jewish leadership. In the midst of speaking of himself as being Lord of the Sabbath and greater than the temple, he quotes yet again. We saw this quote sometime back. It's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 related to mercy and sacrifice. Why in the world would that be so important to Jesus at this moment? Why would that be a part of his argument? It's sort of a a real gotcha for the Pharisees. The Pharisees had all of their laws, regulations, and beliefs down to the minute details But in the midst of their knowing the law, their memorization of the covenant, their pursuit of helping other people practice the law, they missed out on the opportunities to do good to others. And while we know that beliefs, rituals, theology, doctrine, etc., are important because they give us a a foundation, they give us a, a center point in our Christian beliefs. We know that our faith is so much more than those beliefs. It's about practicing. It's about, as we've heard a lot in recent weeks, it's about doing and being the church within our community. The Pharisees had forgotten about caring for people because they were so bound up in their care and concern For maintenance of the law. The text moves on. In verse 9, it says, he, Jesus, left that place and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, suppose one of you has only one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep, a farm animal? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. To destroy him. This is where things really become heated for the Pharisees. The fact that the story opens with a question on their part which has no real sincere motivation, it's just another test, it's another opportunity to try to trip Jesus up on one of the minute details of the law. But then in the text, we also find that they're willing to go as far as destroying him. It's not enough to discount, discredit him. It's not enough to embarrass him. It's not enough to try to slander his name. They're going to go to the nth degree to be done, as we would say with this man. Jesus, at this stage, must go. He is shaking things up. He is reinterpreting the law in ways that the Pharisees were not able to really fathom. They had really hardened themselves over with a shell. They had boxed themselves in into a comfortable place that it was really difficult to handle the way Jesus was approaching the law and the way he was treating people with sympathy, with love, with mercy and goodness. The question is it lawful. And the obvious answer to that would be would be no. Because healings once again would have been considered a form of manual labor on the Sabbath. And if anyone were in a situation where they were bad off, for example, if a condition could be treated in some manner so that things didn't get worse, then that was acceptable. Sabbath practice. For example, if there was a a wound that was oozing, you could change the bandage on it to prevent further infection. But you could not do any kind of measures that could promote healing. It was okay to be preventative on the Sabbath, but it was not acceptable to really see a change in a person's health and well-being on the Sabbath. So there's a lot of no-nos bound up in this moment, and Jesus draws attention to the fact that they had more respect for their everyday animals, whether an ox, whether a sheep. Suppose one of you has one of those, and they could probably all relate to those situations, and believe it or not, it was acceptable, perfectly acceptable to tend to your animals on the Lord's day. You could rescue them, you could feed them, you could do a variety of things related to those animals, but the law did not provide a provision for healing a person completely. It's puzzling to us today, but what Jesus was getting at then and there, just as he quoted from Hosea 6.6 earlier in the chapter, is the fact that it's always the right time to do things that are good. And that was one of the real hold-ups for the Pharisees. They were more concerned about he's violating the covenant law, Versus he is helping make a person's life better. It was a case of Jesus doing good was much worse than him doing nothing at all. And that's something that really becomes a sticking point for us because when we see family and friends, when we know people are struggling in our lives, we will do whatever it takes, even if it is on the Lord's Day, to go and and take them to the hospital, to visit with them, to carry some supplies to them, wherever the need may exist. Jesus says the Sabbath is always an opportunity to express God's love and mercy. It is always an appropriate time. It's not just a matter of working for the sake of working. And I know today in our world there are a lot of people who are addicted to work. I know things have been a little tricky here in recent weeks due to the pandemic, but think about how many people are really slaves to their jobs, you might say. They're constantly running to and fro, work, 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 make another dollar, however, whenever, wherever they can. And so I think when we look at our world today, we've sort of misconstrued a part of what the Sabbath is all about. We have turned the Sabbath into just a regular day, and as Jesus teaches, not here, but elsewhere in the Gospels, the Sabbath was made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. God did not create the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as another opportunity for us to stress, work ourselves to death, and be frazzled. Now granted, there are certain jobs, certain professions that require work on Sundays. We often use this language of an ox in the ditch, a sheep that's in distress. Sometimes we find those emergency situations that happen from time to time. A heating and air conditioning unit goes out, you've got a child that's sick, you've got something that's going on on Sunday morning unexpected, and so you're not able to go about your traditional Sunday routine. One of the key things that we have to remember is this, is that God set forth the standard of the Sabbath when he rested on that seventh day. Following all of those days of creation, God rested. And if it was important for God to rest and establish a precedent for us some many, many, many years removed, shouldn't that moment of rest be a pivotal part of our week? Now maybe you're able to take that on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. What we call the Lord's Day is Sunday, but for the Jewish people it would have been Saturday. We worship and we come together as the church on the first day of the week, Sunday, because it was the day of the resurrection, according to the scriptures. But how many of us have really allowed rest to take a back seat? If we can't do it on Sunday, then how about Thursday? How about Monday? One of the key emphases about Sabbath observance throughout Scripture is, one, taking it, regardless of when it is. If you have to work on Sunday, then that's fine, but make another day, carve out another space in your week where it can be time with just you and God. And I believe if there's something positive that's come out of all of this shutdown over the last several weeks, it's given people a slightly different perspective on the things that are most important. We can't be here physically face-to-face during a time of worship or Bible study But we are able to encounter God in other ways, whether we're watching these videos, whether we're out and about working in the yard, gardening. We're able to encounter and experience God's goodness in so many other expressions that, to be honest with you, we probably have taken for granted until this moment. It's one of my hopes and prayers that the work of Sabbath or rest, that example God gave us on that Day after he finished creating will become more important to us so that we can be less anxious, stressed, frazzled, and so forth. Doing deeds of goodness and mercy. Jesus wasn't advocating just go out and work another 8, 10, 12-hour shift. He would say, spend your time making a difference, doing good, helping another person's situation. Verse 15 picks up with, When Jesus became aware of this, referring to the Pharisees' plot to do away with him, he departed, and many crowds followed him, and he cured all of them, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah, This comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles shall hope. It's another one of those prophetic fulfillment passages from Matthew, as I said, it comes from Isaiah chapter 24. How does that relate to Jesus? It goes back to some of the things we've looked at before about the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. One thing is that section opens up We don't need to think that Jesus was being a coward at that moment. Jesus learned of the plot against him, and so he withdrew. He didn't go into hiding, but he knew that the time was not yet fulfilled. His hour had not yet arrived, as John's gospel would say. And so he was not about to get into the middle of some big blow-up controversy. He knew there was still work to be done, and so for him in that moment to remain in public spotlight under the pressures of the Pharisees and other religious leaders, that it would be very detrimental to his ministry at that particular stage. He knew there were still opportunities to teach, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to provide healings for others. And this fulfillment passage from Isaiah points out a little bit more of what Jesus was all about in his ministry, the kind of Messiah that he came to be. One, he's identified as the one that God's spirit was upon, and the fact that he would proclaim justice, he would not wrangle, he would not break a bruised reed. When Jesus was performing his earthly ministry, yes, there were times when he did some things that were strong, some of the teachings we wrestle with because they can be a little bit offensive to our lifestyle, our way of practicing our Christianity, but then again when we look at Jesus' behaviors, we find him running the money changers out of the temple complex, being angry in a righteous manner. But most of Jesus' ministry was fairly mild-mannered, the fact that he was compassionate to people, that he saw people as people with needs. He saw people where they were hurting and longed to be involved in their situation right then and there. He came not trying to destroy anybody, not trying to beat down people who were already stressed and strained by life, but he came to make God's presence known. And the word that's key in that passage is the word justice. And when we think about justice, we think about doing what is right, what is appropriate in a given situation. God took on human flesh and came and dwelled among humanity to show us how to live in relationship not only to God, but also how we are to interact with one another in a manner that's healthy and productive for our faith. Picking up in verse 22, they brought to him a demonic who was blind and mute, and he cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. Now all the crowds were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow casts out demons. He knew what they were thinking and said to them, every kingdom or house divided against itself will stand. Satan, cast out Satan. If he does so, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do you, by whom do you perform your own exorcisms? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. As we've looked at in previous chapters, we find yet another sickness that is attributed to demon possession. Once again, a lot of things were not understood physically, mentally, and so when all else failed, you associated those conditions with someone being possessed by a demon. In this moment, Jesus casts out the demon, restores this man to health. And one of the first things that happens is this question. It's a puzzling kind of question. On behalf of the crowds, they are amazed. Amazement seems to be a common response to Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Here, they are pondering, can this be the son of David? Now, it may very well be that they were wrestling somewhat like John the Baptist was in chapter 11. Well, he doesn't exactly fit the total mold of the Messiah, but he does have a lot of characteristics. So maybe, just maybe, somehow he is the son of David, the anointed one of God who was to come. And of course, when the people were in amazement, the Pharisees were doing as they typically do. They were grumbling, murmuring amongst themselves, thinking bad things against Jesus. And how ridiculous is that argument? It's only by the power of Satan himself that Jesus is casting out these demons. That makes a whole lot of sense. That really clears things up, doesn't it? And Jesus, to show just how humorous, how ridiculous, whatever you want to say about the situation, he ties in the example of a house or a kingdom that is divided. When there is some kind of discord or division within a family unit, within a country, wherever the setting may be, we know that that setting is not stable. It's not going to grow. It's not going to be productive. It's not going to be happy. It's not going to be fruitful. It's not going to last. And so if Satan is busy casting out himself, then really he's not doing anything productive for the kingdom of evil. And Jesus goes as far as asking, well, if I'm doing this through the power of Satan or Beelzebub, the chief of the demons, then how are you all performing exorcisms? Exorcisms were common in that day and time, and a lot of times they related back to magical practices, superstitious behaviors. There were a lot of things that people had to do in order to experience that exorcism. But here we find in so many of Jesus' healing narratives the power of his spoken word. Jesus comes as his own authority. He does not need permission. He does not need assistance. He does not need empowerment from anything or anybody else because he is the embodiment of God's very self. If I'm doing this through the power of Satan, then how in the world are you doing the same thing, then surely you must be casting out demons through the power of Satan as well. And then he ties in the illustration about a strong man's house and how a strong man must be tied up in order for you to plunder that individual's residence. Well, part of that illustration there tells us about what Christ came to do and the fact that it was already starting to unfold in and through Jesus' ministry, that strong man being Satan. Jesus came onto the scene, entered into our world in order to defeat Satan, in order to defeat that kingdom of evil. And so what was unfolding here was the presence of God overcoming the power of evil through the work of Jesus, but the Pharisees were so callous that they just simply could not fathom God at work through this man, Jesus. But as that section continues, as it closes out, it draws attention to some important things. I've already talked about how we're either for or against Jesus. But it's those last couple of verses that are kind of the hang-up for a lot of people. and That's where I want to spend a few moments as as we wrap up this time together. Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. That's always been one of the big questions within the Christian community, even for people outside the Christian community, but especially amongst Christians. What is the unpardonable sin? I've heard statements over the years. I remember growing up believing that this thing or that thing could be the quote-unquote unpardonable sin. It seems like Jesus muddies the waters just a little bit by his illustration here. But may we offer perhaps some clarity as to why Jesus said these particular strong things at this stage in reply to the Pharisees' assumptions. We find here at work that word that we know is slander. Slander is something that is destructive as anything. I've talked about that in other sermon series, other Bible study texts, how there's great power in words. We can hurt people or we can heal people with our words. We can do a tremendous amount of good in our world through our speech, but it also has the power to kill and destroy, to cut people down, to ruin friendships and family relationships. And that's essentially what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus. Rather than seeing him for who he truly was, They decided to sling as much mud as they could. It's almost like some of those headlines we see on the tabloids when we're checking out at the grocery store or some of those things that we see on certain entertainment programs on television. This person said thus and such about so-and-so. It has to be true, even if it's totally made up. And even those things that are made up, even if they're totally fraudulent, Unfortunately, in our world today, we buy into the juicy gossip. We buy into the slander because, well, there's just something about a person getting what he or she deserves. Somehow that makes us feel better when we cut the other person down. And here, it wasn't simply a matter of the Pharisees cutting down fellow human beings. It was the fact that they were rejecting God's presence. And that unpardonable sin that Jesus speaks of here, he uses the language of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What in the world could that mean? Well, I believe one of the things that we have to realize is this, that a point in time can come where a person becomes so hardened with his or her heart. He or she gets to a time and a place in life where he or she can't or quite honestly doesn't want to hear from God. There are a lot of people in our world today that continue to do their own thing. They're going to chart their own course. They're going to follow their own design for life. They have total disregard for the things of the Spirit. And so a point in time comes that if that's how you want to live your life, then so be it. There becomes that time when a person can continue to sin and no longer be sensitive to the prodding of the Holy Spirit convicting him or her. When you get to the point that you see good things as evil and evil things as good, it indicates that you have really messed up. That you've gotten to the point that you no longer care about your relationship with God. You no longer see a need for a personal Lord and Savior. And so basically, that person thumbs his or her nose at God. I appreciate what you've done, God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, but that's just not for me. And so to boil that down, when we choose to reject the free offer of God's grace, we're rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we become comfortable enough that we can ignore God and are apathetic and indifferent about how we live our lives, the sins that we participate in, that's when we know we're in a dangerous place. I had a conversation with someone some years back and the question was posed How do you know if you've committed the unpardonable sin? And I'll never forget this gentleman's reply. He said, If you're concerned about having committed the unpardonable sin, then don't worry, you haven't committed it. When you still have a sensitivity to God's conviction, when you still realize that you don't have life figured out, the world doesn't revolve around you, you and I have need of a Savior to cleanse us, forgive us, redeem us. When you still have that kind of awareness, then you and I still have that space that God can work, that God can come in and clean up, that God can come in and give us that that second chance or third opportunity at life. But for so many people, the Pharisees in this particular story, they wanted no part at what God was doing through Jesus. And rather than signing up and joining Jesus' cause, they set out to destroy him. I'm not saying that we're necessarily like the Pharisees in the same illustrations we see in chapter twelve. But there are a lot of things that can be somewhat similar when we focus more on our need for regulations and guidelines than for helping people, when we start to see people as objects or, as one author says, projects that need fixing rather than people who need love and compassion, we've kind of become like the Pharisees. When we get to that stage that ministry is no longer about reaching out, but rather turning inward and reaching in to focus on our own needs, we become a little bit like the Pharisees. When we see other people doing good in the world around us and we begin to say negative things, we begin to sling mud to try to discount and discredit those ministries, we're becoming a little bit like the Pharisees. There's one thing for sure what we've seen in chapter 12 thus far is that we can't follow Christ and follow the ways of the Pharisees simultaneously. Our opinions will be one or the other. There can be no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Who is Jesus to you today? Who is Jesus to me those opinions will change our perspectives. And when we see Jesus for who Jesus truly is, it has the power to transform our lives. Sisters and brothers, thank you for being with us again. We'll finish chapter 12 next week and look at the beginning of chapter 13, which is another teaching unit that focuses on a number of parables from Jesus. We'll talk a little bit about what it means to teach in parables and how those specific passages relate to the proclamation of God's kingdom. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this day. We thank you for Jesus, for the love, the mercy, the grace that was embodied in everything that he did and said. And now, as followers of Christ, we continue in that ministry. We continue to be instruments of your goodness in our world today. Lord, help us not to be like the Pharisees, because even on our good days, even with our best of intentions, Sometimes our attitude can be a little bit hypocritical. Sometimes we forget who we really are, that we're people created in your image, that we're created not for ourselves, but we're created for you and making your presence known in the world. Lord, help us to have a renewed perspective of you through your Son Jesus, and may that change us through and through. May that mold us and make us into a different quality of people, the kind of people who bear the kingdom of God to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God's peace be with you. May his grace go before you. May you encounter his love now and in the journey ahead. Amen and amen.